0: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode of Sports Criminals includes discussions of abuse involving minors that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: On April 13th, 2004, Mike Danton and the hometown St. Louis Blues battled the formidable San Jose Sharks in Game 4 of the Western Conference quarterfinals. Already down 2-1 in the series, Game 4 was practically a must-win. Although a 3-1 deficit wasn't insurmountable, winning three in a row against the Sharks would be a tall task.
0: But by the middle of the first period, the Blues were already down 1-0. It seemed like the home fans were in for a bad time. However, St. Louis still had fight left in them.
1: A few minutes later, Blues center Mike Sillinger was deep in shark's territory with the puck and looking to dump it. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw Mike Danton barreling up the ice. Just before a defenseman clobbered him into the boards, Sillinger slipped the puck to Mike. Using his momentum, Mike juked past another shark. All he had to do now was get the puck past the goalie.
0: He knew he could snipe it to the corner of the net, but Mike's window to shoot wouldn't be open long. It was now or never. He swung back his stick, and Mike Danton scored his first playoff goal. It should have been a moment of ecstasy. But deep down, Mike's mind was elsewhere.
1: As his coaches and teammates congratulated him, Mike could only think about one thing.
0: Did the hitman he hired to kill his agent go through with the job?
1: Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast Original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast
0: Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar.
1: At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
0: Today, we finish our story of Mike Danton, the troubled Canadian hockey player who attempted to hire a hitman to kill his own agent, David Frost.
1: Last week, we explored the battle between Mike, his family, and David Frost.
0: This week, we'll dive into Mike's scheme to try and get his agent and mentor killed.
1: In 2000, 19-year-old Mike Danton was drafted in the fifth round by the New Jersey Devils. After more than a decade of dedicating his life to hockey, Mike had finally made it to the pros.
0: But his relationship with the Devils didn't go the way either side had hoped. The Devils wanted to groom Mike into a star, but that meant beginning his career at their affiliate minor team, the Albany River Rats. Mike didn't take kindly to this perceived slight. His agent and longtime mentor, David Frost, had convinced him that he was going to be one of the greats. And the greats didn't
1: play in the minors with Frost manipulating Mike behind the scenes, it was only a matter of time before Mike and the Devils parted ways. In June 2003, Mike got what he wanted and was traded to the St. Louis Blues.
0: Once he arrived in St. Louis, it seemed like Mike had turned things around. Instead of butting heads with a front office and distancing himself from his teammates, Mike was becoming part of the team. But none of his fellow Blues realized that Mike was in the midst of a troubling internal battle.
1: By the time he got to St. Louis, a decade of hockey had taken a toll on his body. In order to manage the pain, he had become addicted to painkillers, sleeping pills, and alcohol. This mixture, combined with the pressure to succeed, tore at his mental state shortly after his arrival in st louis he became paranoid that someone was out to kill him
0: once this idea took root in mike's head it didn't let go as the blues made it to the 2004 playoffs the thought that a hit had been put on him completely took over mike's mind if he was going to stay alive he would have to strike first and he knew just the man for the job
1: In the days leading up to Mike's first NHL playoff game, he met with a strip club bouncer named Ronnie Jones. Mike was a frequent customer at the club. Presumably, he had seen Ronnie handle his fair share of tough guys.
0: But he wanted Ronnie to do much more than rough someone up. In exchange for $10,000, Mike wanted Ronnie to commit murder. And the picture he showed Ronnie of his intended target
1: was none other than David Frost. But Mike didn't say anything about Frost trying to kill him. Instead, he told Ronnie that he wanted Frost killed because of a money dispute. He promised it would be a simple job. Ever since Mike joined the NHL, Frost occasionally slept over at his apartment. In spring 2004, Frost was staying with him in St. Louis there would be plenty of time for Ronnie to strike before Frost left town
0: but for Ronnie Jones it didn't matter what the reasoning was or how much Mike was willing to pay him he may have been tough but he wasn't a killer but no matter how many times Ronnie told him he wasn't interested Mike wasn't ready to take no for an answer in the meantime however there was still
1: hockey to play on April 8, 2004, Mike and the St. Louis Blues traveled to San Jose and faced off against the Sharks in the opening round of the Western Conference quarterfinals. Despite the Blues' best effort, the Sharks won in OT 1-0. The Sharks took game two, two nights later, 3-1. Mike played for less than 10 minutes in both games. But even if he had gotten more ice time, he probably wouldn't have made a difference. All Mike could think about was the fact that someone could kill him at any moment. He needed Ronnie Jones to complete the hit against Frost as soon as possible. Even without Mike at his best, the Blues still felt they were in the series. With
0: the next two games in St. Louis, they had a good chance of evening it up. But while the rest of his team was focused on the upcoming Game 3, Mike was constantly pestering Ronnie. He believed the bouncer would eventually change his tune.
1: On the afternoon of April 11th, Easter Sunday, Mike called Ronnie again. After a couple of rings, he heard Ronnie's voicemail recording. In the message he left, Mike desperately asked how he was doing with the hit. He stressed that Frost would be a sitting duck staying at Mike's apartment glued to the television. Mike then gave Ronnie his hockey schedule and the address to his apartment, 1800 South Brentwood Boulevard, apartment 1382. Ronnie never called Mike back. The next night, the Blues hosted the Sharks for game
0: three. It was Mike's first playoff home game. However, the coach wasn't going to play Mike just for sentiment's sake. On that night, he only got a little over
1: five minutes of ice time. And it looked like the team didn't need him. Behind a pair of Mike Sillinger goals, St. Louis won 4-1. The series was now 2-1. The Blues still had a chance. But Mike didn't share
0: his teammates' excitement. It wasn't the lack of playing time that bothered him the most, though.
1: It was the fact that when he got home, David Frost was still alive. Going into game four on April 13th, Mike was agitated over the radio silence from Ronnie Jones. As game time approached, Mike, dressed and ready to play, looked at himself in the mirror. What he saw was a man marked for death, a doomed soul.
0: Mike's trance was broken when his coach yelled for him to get to the bench. With a deep breath, Mike put on his helmet and headed to the rink. It was time
1: to play hockey. Back in St. Louis, David Frost sat in Mike's apartment, watching the game on TV. When the Sharks scored six minutes into the game, Frost bitterly swore. The Blues needed to get their act together and quick.
0: When Mike finally got on the ice, Frost couldn't help but feel a sense of pride. For 10 years, he made Mike his special project, invested his time and effort into turning the young man into a hockey star. Now he was in his first playoff series. It was only a matter of time before both of them were lifting Lord Stanley's Cup over their heads together.
1: Five minutes later, he watched on the edge of his seat as Sillinger passed the puck to Mike. Frost yelled at the TV for Mike to shoot it. He had the lane. Sure enough, Mike shot, and the puck found its way into the net. Frost jumped off the couch in pure joy. Mike had really done it.
0: As Frost sat back down, beer in hand, he had no idea that the kid he was celebrating was trying to have him
1: killed. The rest of game four was a battle of wills. Despite Mike's hard-fought goal, the Blues ultimately lost four to three.
0: It didn't matter to Mike that he finally scored a playoff goal or that he needed to focus on the do or die game five in San Jose. All he cared about was
1: killing David Frost. On April 14th, while in San Jose, Mike left another voicemail for Ronnie. In his message, he told Ronnie that Frost was still alone at the apartment. Mike needed to know if Ronnie was up to the hit. If he wasn't, Mike would find someone who was. As Mike put it in the message, the whole situation was a matter of life and death.
0: As the hours passed, Mike felt like his death was just around the corner. It was obvious that Ronnie wasn't taking him seriously. It was time to look for someone else. To help find his new hitman, Mike called the girl he'd been seeing the past few weeks, 19
1: year old skating instructor Katie Wolfmeyer. Katie was head over heels for Mike. When she came to watch him play in game four, she wore a shirt that said, we want Danton. Though it's unclear if Mike felt the same way about her, he apparently trusted her enough to help him find a hitman.
0: When Katie picked up, Mike told her a hitman from Canada was on his way down to St. Louis to kill him. Mike said he needed someone to get to the hitman first.
1: No, he needed the man who hired the hitman killed. In Mike's confused state, nothing quite added up. At one point, Frost was the man who hired the hitman. The next, he was the hitman himself. But if that was the case, why would Frost stay at Mike's apartment for a few days and not just kill him right away? Well, these are questions that Katie never bothered to ask.
0: The girl who Toronto Sun reporter Steve Simmons described as infatuated with Mike jumped at the chance to help him. After talking to Mike on April 14th, she promised to find someone later that night.
1: A few hours after she talked to Mike, Katie was at a bar when she met 19-year-old Justin Levi Jones. After knowing each other for less than an hour, Katie believed that he would be perfect for the job, even though he was a police dispatcher. Katie called Mike
0: and told him about Jones. Inexplicably, Mike wasn't phased by the not-so-tiny detail that this prospective hitman worked for the police
1: he told Katie to go ahead and approach Jones about the hit. After getting the okay from Mike, Katie revealed to Jones that she had a friend who was in need of some help. She was cagey on the details, but Jones could tell she was serious. He agreed to talk with Mike. But once they got on the phone, Mike was vague about what he wanted. He would only say that he needed someone taken care of. Frustrated and suspicious, Jones bluntly asked Mike if he wanted Jones to beat someone up. Mike finally clarified that he wanted his target taken care of for good. Jones couldn't
0: believe what he was hearing. Roughing someone up was one thing. Killing a man was another. This was officially a murder-for-hire situation. He had to take it to his chief. At that point, Jones
1: started recording the conversation. Mike offered Jones the same payment he offered Ronnie, $10,000. The first 3,000 would be waiting for Jones in Mike's unlocked apartment safe. The rest would follow. Towards the end of their conversation, Mike once again said that getting rid of Frost was a matter of life and death, the same phrase he'd used in the voicemail for Ronnie a few hours earlier. Mike's desperation was becoming overwhelming. The plan was simple. While Mike was in the middle of Game 5, Jones and Katie would go to Mike's apartment and kill Frost. A wave of relief washed over Mike as he ended the call. After months
0: of fearing for his life, everything would be okay. With Frost out of the picture, he could go back to devoting his life to the sport he used to love so
1: much. He just needed to wait one more day. Back in St. Louis, 37-year-old David Frost sat in Mike Danton's apartment, eagerly waiting to watch Mike play in game five. He had no idea that his client, the man he molded into a professional hockey player, the man who was like a son to him, had just arranged his death. Coming up,
0: While Mike plays game five of the Western Conference quarterfinals, David Frost makes the startling discovery that he is a marked man.
1: Now back to the story.
0: On April 14th, 2004, 23-year-old hockey player Mike Danton was finally able to hire a man to kill his agent and mentor, David Frost. Or so
1: he thought. Strangely, Mike didn't seem to care that 19-year-old Justin Levi Jones was a police dispatcher. As long as Jones was willing to keep a secret, he would pay him $10,000 to take care of Frost.
0: But Jones never intended to go through with the hit. Well, during the phone call, he recorded Mike ordering the murder for hire. The following morning, he took the recording to his police chief in Columbia, Illinois, about 15 miles from St. Louis. Once his chief listened to the tapes, they sent everything to the FBI. Because Mike ordered the murder in a different state, the case fell under
1: the bureau's jurisdiction. After talking with the FBI, Jones agreed to participate in a fake hit against Frost. While wearing a wire, he would make sure to get Mike's friend, 19-year-old Katie Wolfmeyer, to implicate herself. Jones would even carry an unloaded gun to make sure Katie didn't become suspicious. All they had to do now was wait for nightfall. Well, meanwhile, Mike anxiously waited
0: for news from Jones. As the start of game five approached, stadium surveillance captured Mike near the locker room, his head buried against his stick. If someone happened to walk by, they could have easily chalked up Mike's behavior as nerves. Nobody had any idea that he was worried
1: about a murder occurring 2,000 miles away. Around 7.30 p.m., the puck was finally dropped at center ice. Game five was officially underway. Less than two minutes into the game, Sharks defenseman Brad Stewart netted one past Chris Osgood to give the Sharks a 1-0 lead. The quick goal was a sign that perhaps the Blues were in for a long night. But the Blues refused to roll over. A little over 10 minutes later, Brian Savage
0: scored on Evgeny Nabokov to tie the game. They needed to win this. Their
1: playoff hopes depended on it. Even with all that energy around him, Mike couldn't concentrate on the game. In between periods, he was on his phone. According to teammate Ryan Johnson, he was texting with Frost. It's possible Mike was hoping Frost wouldn't respond, indicating the hit went through, or he was making sure that Frost still suspected nothing. Regardless, going into the second period, Mike's head remained in St. Louis. About five minutes into the second period, he was called for tripping and sent to the penalty box.
0: For the next two minutes, his mind raced between whether or not Frost was dead and whether his team would be able to kill his penalty. Well, thankfully, at least one of those things happened. The Blues stopped the Sharks from scoring
1: on the power play. He hoped Jones could carry out the hit with the same success. Back in St. Louis, Jones and Katie finally arrived at Mike's apartment complex. But to get to Frost, they had to go through a security station. They had no choice but to tell the guard they were there to see Mike. As the guard called up to the apartment, Jones cursed under his breath. It seemed like the sting was over before it had even started, but the guard let them through. Apparently, Frost wanted to talk to them.
0: Frost watched the car pull into the parking lot from Mike's balcony. Before Jones and Katie could come up, Frost demanded to know who they were and what they wanted. Jones said that he and Katie were friends of Mike's and they came to see him But Frost didn't fall for it. He replied that if Jones really was Mike's friend,
1: he'd know that Mike was in San Jose. According to Toronto Sun reporter Steve Simmons, Frost claimed to be Mike's father, Steve. Confused as to whether or not the man before them was actually his target, Jones realized the operation was going off the rails. As panic set in, Jones backed the car up and sped off.
0: A few blocks away, Jones parked the car at the designated meeting point with the FBI. Katie Wolfmeyer was frantic. She had no idea who the man claiming to be Mike's dad was. She thought he sort of looked like Frost, but wasn't sure it was him. As Katie panicked, Jones told her that he was going to go back to the apartment and finish the job. But Katie begged him to stay in the car with her and wait for Mike to call them with further instructions.
1: Jones sat back and thought about it. Because Katie was so scared, staying in the car meant that she could potentially reveal more incriminating information. But instead, Katie suddenly went quiet, much to Jones' annoyance. He decided he'd wait for one of two things, Mike's call or the FBI's arrival. The FBI came first
0: less than 10 minutes after parking, the car was surrounded by police and FBI. Katie didn't put up any resistance. She was taken into a squad car and charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Jones was arrested alongside Katie, though it was all just for show. With the investigation still ongoing, it was important
1: not to blow his cover. The FBI went to Mike's apartment to question Frost. They wanted to know if Frost was actually the contract killer Mike believed was after him. Frost had no idea what the FBI was talking about. Why would a hitman come after Mike? It was ludicrous. The FBI agent assured Frost it wasn't ludicrous. In fact, Mike had ordered a hit on him as a preemptive strike. Frost laughed, but then the
0: agent took him into Mike's bedroom and showed him the open to safe with $3,000. Frost finally realized what he was being told was true.
1: He needed to talk to Mike immediately. Back in San Jose, the St. Louis Blues had just fallen to the Sharks 3-1 and were eliminated from the playoffs. As Mike's teammates consoled each other, he rushed to his phone. Still no news from Jones or Katie.
0: As he made his way to the locker room, Mike's phone finally rang. His eyes widened when he saw the caller ID.
1: It was Frost. Mike nervously answered. Frost told Mike that the FBI had just arrested two people sent to kill him and that he knew Mike was behind it. Bursting into tears, Mike denied the accusation. He began to ramble about how he hadn't been thinking straight and that he even had suicidal thoughts. It's tough to tell whether
0: Mike was lying to Frost, burying his soul, or a mixture of both. Mike's head was swirling a mile a minute. His team's season had just ended and his plan to kill Frost had failed. His world was crashing down around him. He needed to know what Jones knew. When he got off the phone with Frost, he frantically called the undercover police dispatcher.
1: Mike still had no idea that Jones was in with the FBI. It never occurred to him how strange it was that Jones, who was theoretically under arrest, was still allowed to use his cell phone.
0: Mike was distraught. He told Jones that the FBI were at his apartment talking with a man who should be dead. Still completely unaware that Jones was in on the sting, Mike called him to deny that they knew each other, and after a few minutes of hysterical rambling, Mike abruptly hung up. It was
1: the last time they would talk. As April 15th turned into the 16th, the St. Louis Blues slowly made their way back to their hotel rooms, coming to terms with the fact that their season had just ended. It was now back to the drawing board. Perhaps next year would be the year.
0: But Mike didn't have time to dwell on hockey. Realizing that the walls had closed in on him, he decided to ditch his teammates and fly back to St. Louis alone. What he planned to do when he got there is
1: anyone's guess. Before he left the hotel, he left several messages on Katie Wolfmeyer's phone. He told her to deny that he and Jones had ever met. He also wanted her to downplay how many times she and Mike had actually hung out. At the end of the last message, he told her to be strong. They would get through this.
0: In the early hours of Friday, April 16th, Mike made his way to the airport. One can only imagine what was going through his head as he waited for his flight. Perhaps he was trying to formulate a plan on how to handle the FBI. Maybe he considered reaching out to Frost and squaring things with him,
1: or maybe he thought about packing his things and disappearing. Whatever his plans were, it didn't matter. As he prepared to board the plane, Mike was surrounded by several FBI agents. In front of everyone at the airport, the 23-year-old rising hockey star was arrested for conspiracy to commit murder.
0: The life and career that
1: he had spent over a decade fighting for was over. Coming up, Mike faces the consequences of his actions while Frost's own deep-seated secrets are revealed. Now, back to the story. On the morning of April 16th, 2004, the FBI arrested 23-year-old hockey player Mike Danton for conspiracy to commit murder. Over the course of the past month, Mike had tried and failed to get his agent and mentor, David Frost, killed. Upon his arrest, Mike was sent to
0: the Santa Clara County Department of Correction before being taken back to St. Louis. During his time in Santa Clara, Mike had multiple phone calls with Frost. According to Steve Simmons of the Toronto Sun, Over the first 12 days Danton spent in Santa Clara County Jail, there were 79 phone calls between him and the man he apparently wanted dead. The FBI had
1: approximately 1,000 minutes of conversation on tape. The nature of these conversations varied wildly, and almost anything pertaining to why Mike may have wanted Frost dead was in code. But the way Mike and Frost spoke to one another indicated the control Frost had over his protege. At the end of each conversation, Frost forced Mike to proclaim his love for him. But in the recordings, Mike sounded as if he was under pressure to comply. Almost immediately after the arrest,
0: rumors began to swirl that the attempted hit on Frost was the result of a lover's quarrel. Well, some people suspected that they had secretly been sexual partners for years. To this day, both Mike and Frost deny any sexual relationship, though Mike does admit that their relationship
1: wasn't normal. Another theory was that Mike was trying to get rid of Frost over money. As we mentioned earlier, Mike did tell Ronnie Jones that he wanted to kill Frost because of a financial dispute. Though he never told Ronnie what the sum was, According to Toronto Sun reporter Steve Simmons, Mike owed Frost $25,000, most likely in agent fees.
0: However, the jail phone calls debunked the money dispute as a motive. In coded language, Frost repeatedly asked if Mike mentioned the $25,000 figure to anyone. Mike denied that he told anyone about owing Frost any money. Of course, Mike could have been lying But he was making $500,000 a year. On that salary, $25,000 isn't such a large sum that it's worth killing someone
1: over, even for Mike Danton. As the calls continued, it became clearer and clearer that Frost was still exerting power over Mike. As Mike's day in court neared, Frost used that power to convince Mike to perjure himself.
0: Frost encouraged Mike to play up his emotional and mental instability to a doctor. That way, Mike could go for an insanity plea. However, the FBI agents listening to their conversations managed to thwart this plan before Mike got into more trouble than he was
1: already in. As spring turned to summer, many hockey fans clung to their newspapers for any new, sordid details. They hoped that one of the many theories about why Mike had tried to have Frost killed would prove to be true. However, they were left with disappointment. On July 16, 2004, three months after he was arrested, Mike pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit murder. The United States versus Michael Sage Danton ended not with a bang, but with a whimper. In his plea agreement, all he did was admit to the charge. He didn't explain why he did it or even who his target was.
0: Four months later, Mike was sentenced to seven and a half
1: years in
0: federal prison. While he toiled away behind bars, Frost faced legal issues
1: of his own. On August 22, 2006, 39-year-old David Frost was arrested in Ontario, Canada. He was charged with 12 counts of sexual exploitation and one count of assault against four men and three women. The charges stemmed from when Frost was coaching the Quinty Hawks in 1996. Unfortunately, the lead prosecutor was ill-equipped to handle such a delicate case. When the defense was able to point out inconsistencies in the women's testimonies, the prosecution had no response.
0: On November 28, 2008, Frost was acquitted on all charges. As columnist Rosie DeMano of The Star wrote, the judge expressed amazement. The prosecution hadn't called players' parents, sports psychologists and police investigators or subpoenaed cell phone records. Frost, as he had so many times in the past,
1: dodged justice. By the time Frost was acquitted, Mike was four years into his sentence. However, in March 2009, Mike was allowed to transfer to a Canadian prison in Kingston, Ontario. Six months later, Mike went before the parole board to plead his case for early release.
0: During the parole hearing on September 11, 2009, the board asked Mike to describe why he had committed his crime. Back in 2004, nobody involved in the case could come to any reasonable conclusion. They all just knew he was guilty because he admitted he was.
1: Finally, Mike elaborated on the crime he had stayed silent about for so many years. But he claimed that the man he wanted dead wasn't David Frost. It was his father, Steve Jefferson,
0: Mike went on to recount his story that someone was after him and that this belief was enhanced by the use of sleeping pills and stimulants. He claimed that an unnamed family member confirmed that Steve was on his way to kill him. The idea that Frost was the intended target was simply a misunderstanding.
1: He told the parole board about his troubled and abusive childhood, that Steve would repeatedly beat him if he struggled with hockey, and that his mother constantly smelled of marijuana. When Frost entered Mike's life, it was only natural for Mike to turn to him as a protector. Why would he want to kill the man who saved him from his parents' abuse?
0: Given that Mike never named his target in his original plea agreement, the sudden change didn't really affect the parole board's decision. Mike had been a good prisoner and was seen as low risk. And since he planned on going to school and attempting a hockey comeback, the board felt that Mike had turned over a new leaf. So Mike was granted parole. He was once again a free man.
1: Mike kept his word. In January 2010, he began classes at St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and immediately joined the men's hockey team. In his first year back on the ice, Mike helped lead the St. Mary's Huskies to a collegiate championship and was named an academic All-Canadian for his good grades. After two college seasons, Mike signed a deal with IFK Ura in Sweden. It wasn't the NHL, but it was still a chance to play professionally again.
0: It wasn't long until Mike was back in the headlines, but this time it wasn't for trying to take a life. It was for saving one. During the third period of a game in September 2011, Mike's teammate Marcus Bankson hit his head on the ice and began to convulse. Fearing that Marcus could choke on his tongue and die, Mike stuck his fingers into Marcus's mouth. He was able to get Marcus's tongue out of the way so he could breathe normally. Marcus was rushed to a hospital and made a full recovery.
1: Saving Marcus's life was the highlight of Mike's time in Sweden. During the off-season, Mike signed with a team in the Austrian Hockey League. For the next six years, he bounced around different European teams. In 2016, he managed to find his way back to Canada, where he played with the Riviere du Loup. At the end of the season, 36-year-old Mike Danton retired from the sport. Mike,
0: now 39, resides in Halifax with his wife Nancy, whom he met through a classmate during his time at St. Mary's. They have three children. He is earning a master's at the University of New Brunswick, fittingly in sports psychology. And he was recently named the head coach of the Pictou County Crushers, a junior A-team in Nova Scotia. It seems as if the troubled young star managed to turn his life
1: around. Meanwhile, as Mike spent the 2010s changing his life and owning up to his crime, David Frost seems to have fallen into relative obscurity. After being acquitted in 2009, Frost eventually moved to Laguna Niguel, California. Once there, he went under the name Jim McCauley and worked as a health consultant for a gym. In 2013, after numerous complaints by neighbors, The gym moved, and Frost followed. That appears to be the last we've heard of David Frost, for now.
0: As for Mike's parents, as of 2012, they still had no contact with their son. His mother, Sue, sent letters to Mike while he was in prison. He didn't read a single one. Instead,
1: he tore them up and sent them back. Mike's father, Steve Jefferson, hates Frost for what he did to his family. His biggest regret is allowing Frost to take hold of Mike and for being so blind to the years of manipulation.
0: Years after his bombshell parole board hearing claim, Mike has maintained that Steve Jefferson was the real
1: target all along, not David Frost. In an interview with the Canadian organization Jagged Journey in November, 2018, Mike still claimed that his upbringing was abusively violent, specifically coming from Steve. And Mike still refused to name Frost as the hit's intended target. Despite Mike's denials, all the evidence points to Frost.
0: Mike hadn't spoken to his family in years, and the Jeffersons lived in a completely different country at the time of the hit. On top of that, the strip club bouncer Ronnie Jones
1: was adamant that the picture Mike showed him was of Frost there is one theory that seems to explain why Mike would want to kill his mentor. Sue Jefferson told Toronto Sun reporter Steve Simmons that she believes it was an attempt to free himself from Frost's control. After being traded to St. Louis, Mike was finally fitting in with the team. Unlike in New Jersey, Mike seemed to have finally found his home. Unfortunately, his tight relationship with Frost made it
0: impossible for Mike to fully embrace this new life. It's possible that he believed that the only way to completely sever ties with Frost was to kill him.
1: But the question still remains, why did Mike want Frost dead? Only Mike knows, and he refuses to talk. And he probably never will.
0: Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. Among the many sources, we found Steve Simmons' The Lost Dream, the story of Mike Danton, David Frost, and a broken Canadian family, especially helpful in our research. We'll be back next week with another episode.
1: You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify.
0: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
1: To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar.
0: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter
1: at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
0: Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, and Carly Madden. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Joe Guerra and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy.